I think a lot of people choose jobs because mm. they're safe and that decision might be very guided because you have this fixed timeline in place of when you want to retire, when you want to start a family, when you want to have years of just having a lot of money that you get to spend before you inevitably die. And if that weren't the case where you're not like, oh, by age 80, I know I'm probably you know going to be done having quality years of working or whatever it may be, you might be more apt to taking on things that you actually care about. Hey, what's up? Welcome to the Friendship Futurism Podcast. Here we talk about friendships in the 22nd century. I'm your host, Bill May. Today I'm chatting with Kat Katarovich. She is the founder of DNA Deviance, a synthetic biology community with a weekly journal club and tons of interesting events. In this episode, you'll learn about how to get hundreds of people interested in deep technical topics, the power dynamics between young and old people, the latest longevity and anti-aging research that you can apply to your life, how to stand out in a group discussion, and so much more. Welcome, Kat, to the show. I'm actually curious, would you genetically engineer your kids? Oh, I think if I could prevent them from getting certain diseases which they were susceptible for, then I would say yes, because you could also just say, why not adopt then, which I'm not opposed to adoption. My mom was adopted. But I I think there is potential to engineer for positive trait selection. That's yeah. not necessarily like designer babies in the context of we want them to look a certain way. I would say more for health reasons. I wouldn't yeah. be opposed to it. Well, if you adopt kids, you're, you're just kind of pushing the problem one level away because yeah. whoever their bio parents are yeah. will have either... Uh, have genetically engineered them or not. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What are some common ways of genetically engineering your babies? Well, if, you know, they have a certain copy or a certain variant that puts them at a risk for having some protein being made or a dysfunctional protein being made or something that will cause an undesirable disease or disorder, mm. um, if you correct that mutation when, the I guess, like the egg hasn't developed to a full embryo, um, you could make that alteration and then, you know, all the cells that give, you know, are born from that individual cell. Mm -hmm. um, so you can make like changes at that level. But yeah, it kind of depends like what you're trying to engineer. If it's like a single change or like a whole gene or if you want to insert something, take something out. But that's that's kind of what I see as. Yeah. Would we ever get designer babies? Like how much control I mean, would there you is, have? There is an investigator who, I mean, he has uh, now, I think he, I don't know if I didn't follow the story too closely. Maybe he's, I think he's in jail now, but he did engineer babies. I think this was in, I forget which, um, which country in Asia, but it did happen and he got a lot of bad press about it since they told him he can't do it and he did it yeah um and he publicly was public about it was this the one where um the i believe it was twin girls who yeah. didn't yeah, yeah. um things like, like hiv, related. HIV related. Yeah, yeah. yeah 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 i didn't follow the story but i know that um definitely it created like a whole ethics controversy right but we have the technology, right? We just yeah. don't have the ethics. Yeah, we have the technology. I don't think, um, to some degree, we have the technology. And I don't know if, um, I think it, it's going to be really hard to kind of draw the boundary of like, what is for the sake of just like creating yeah. the, what we like idealize the perfect human versus like what is actually, you know, the potential to just like improve the quality of life of that right. individual. But um, I think ethics are going to be like really the most challenging hurdle there. Yeah, makes sense. 
What is the perfect human when it comes to an attendee of your journal club? Oh, <laughs> I think someone who's curious and really excited to learn about synthetic biology or in general, or maybe they're coming. I think we have like an interesting complementary fit with Bits and Bio, which is a different um, community that attracts engineers that want to work on problems that are relevant to biology versus we're more so here are different interesting topics in biology though we have more of a focus on synbio and tool development and engineering kind of biological engineering but we do also cover topics outside of that so i think like we nicely kind of provide a lot of the resources that folks like the ones that come in bits and bio might make use of of going through like different topics discussing papers, inviting first authors, inviting founders, uh, trying to just get their exciting work, get more press. So anyone who's just like curious to be an enthusiastic yeah. part of the community. Is curiosity something that could be taught? Interesting. I feel like... Is it a genetic trait? I feel like some people are trained against being curious. And I think I a lot of like schooling systems or even just like how you're raised kind of trains you to not really sort of poke at your curiosities. Um, I think everyone is born with curiosity. Yeah. It just depends on whether it's nurtured or not. Right, yeah. You know, I certainly want more people to be curious. Yeah. You know, I think it's a uh, thing that sadly we don't have enough of in this world. So mm -hmm. that's why, I mean, I like talking to people like you, right? Because we, as event creators, right, like kind of foster that curiosity out of people and like, yeah. you know, really take them out of this, society where they've been trained not to be curious and encourage them to be curious again. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think curiosity is probably the best thing that anyone can kind of hold on to. No, it's sad. And that's kind of why I'm also super excited when these like novel programs come about of just, you know, these alternative fellowships or these new institutes are kind of re-envisioning how mm -hmm. academia and schooling systems have been running. Because not every system, we want people to kind of fit into like certain buckets because it's easier to manage, mm -hmm. you know, larger groups that way, but not, that's not really unlocking everyone's potential. Mm -hmm. So yeah, in a lot of ways, I think that's like stamping down curiosity. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I love it. Uh, first of all, like to give you feedback on DNA deviance, yeah. when I first heard that name, I really loved it. Right. Like just the idea of like, what was the connotation? <laughs> deviancy in like biology and like, because as an outsider to me, right? Like I had always had this vision of biology and medicine as this closed gated community that you had to like have a certain pedigree or like credential to be part of. Yeah. You know, I felt like as an outsider, I couldn't be taken seriously or legitimately because I had no formal background or anything, right? Yeah. But that hasn't been an obstacle for me participating in any of your events, oh, right? That's and awesome. like, you know, I think I really loved kind of the openness and like with bits and bio too, right? It's like mm -hmm. explicitly about like, people who are not in biology coming together mm -hmm. um, to collide ideas. And so I really liked that that is something that you've been able to create. And I'm actually curious, kind of the whole story of mm -hmm. DNA Deviance, like how you started, uh, how it's evolved to this point, how you got your first uh, people to come. Yeah. Um, yeah, just tell me about that. So I was working um, at Harvard Medical School with uh, and a colleague in, in my lab who's now uh, one of the, also the core moderators of DNA Deviance. We used to just have like, a journal club together and we invite mm -hmm. some folks. That's Jane? Um, no, this was Elijah. Elijah, okay. Yeah, so Elijah and I were both technicians in the same lab at Harvard, um, Connie Sepko's lab. And we, you know, we kind of wanted to find community and wanted to kind of prepare for applying to grad school someday. And so we would just find papers we were really excited about, read them together, and then the pandemic hit. And we couldn't really find that same motivation to just do it, the two of us. 
And we, we kind of wanted to both like branch out of the space that we were in, which is retinal developmental biology. Um, Elijah was also doing nanobody engineering. I was an early user of Clubhouse, this like mm-hmm, audio mm-hmm. app. And I used to go on there and just like hear like Mark and Dreesen talk about venture. And I was like, well, we're all the biology people. Like I am not hearing like people talk about biology. So it was like a nice niche to try to capitalize on. And Josh Elkington from Axial VC, he used to host these like biotech um, rooms where he would just talk about current trends and awesome companies. And Josh would kind of pull me up and get me into those conversations. And then something just clicked where I was like, Elijah, we should bring the journal club to Clubhouse. There's so many folks who are excited to tune into these conversations. Um, There isn't that much community during the pandemic available for people. I think this is like a great opportunity for us to do this. And so Elijah and I had a couple of these journal clubs on Clubhouse. And Jane was like a participant of the early um, early sessions that we had. And she pitched us on like a paper that she thought would be really cool. And we're like, oh, this is awesome. You should join us. You should be another core person. And same thing happened when Paul, when we were doing an AlphaFold series, Paul is more of a ML person who was like, oh, you guys should, you know, they'd be cool to like collaborate on this AlphaFold series. And so we brought him in at that point. And that's kind of how we've been kind of growing the community and adding more core folks as people kind of find their niche and they want to contribute more. Um, we invite them to be part of the core team. But it all it all kind of started with just having kind of our own makeshift technician uh, journal club and then it grew to um, a larger community. Amazing. So you guys started remotely. Elijah and I started in person, I just see. a couple of us. The kind of your friends and like... Yeah, so yeah. this was just at Harvard. It was like really kind of a closed community. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of, we had this idea because our lab did a lot of like journal clubs and brainstorming sessions. So our lab was a really collaborative environment. And so we kind of uh, fa- got inspiration from our PI. She used to host these, it was called Meeting of the Minds where you have a topic, you have a little subgroup that you're matched with that always rotates in the lab and you pick a paper or an interesting topic and you try to teach the whole lab and it could be outside of, you know, our field of interest, relevant to our field of interest. And so we kind of took inspiration from, honestly, from Connie. She was a great mentor. But yeah, it started just the two of us, grew a little bit larger to um, folks on Clubhouse and then just kind of kept expanding. We Mm -hmm. tried to sort of try different mediums. Now we're on uh, Twitch. Twitch is what we've settled on now. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. At what point did you transition into doing in-person events? So this was when the pandemic was starting to um, sort of reach a, I guess, like die down a little bit. This was in 2021. We, um, right after we kind of made an official Slack and we wanted folks to also continue brainstorming asynchronously, not just um, during our journal club sessions. I think actually it was like a comment in the Slack that like, oh, if someone posted, oh, if, you know, if people are interested in grabbing drinks in Boston, we should do that one day. And then something clicked where we were again, where we were just like, wait, we should kind of help foster this. And kind of organically, our first meetup was with ODLB, which is um, the on-deck longevity biotech um, group. And so Nathan helped us kind of co-sponsor a meeting. So we got people some free drinks and food and kind of it all just sort of snowballed one after another. We then had um, Pillar and then Alok, uh, all these awesome folks helped us sponsor events. And so it just, it was kind of very easy to organize. I think people were longing for more in-person things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think like certainly, uh, at least the ones I've been to, you know, have been very well put together. Uh, you know, having the sponsorship helps a lot, right? Yeah. Uh, to having the space and like the food and the drinks and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Why do people sponsor your events? Is it to hire? 
So but people actually don't come to us with a given motive. It always kind of turns out um, to be like, they just thank us for, you know, hosting these events. It never feels like too networky or corporate. Okay. I've been to a lot of networking events in the biotech space at this point. And I think ours are a bit more casual. So the flavor of the, the meeting is a little bit more, oh, here mm-hmm. are interesting people. And I look at the list. I try to kind of figure out like who might be like an interesting person to connect with a different person. And so during the event, I try to like bring those people together that have RSVPDS. I try to kind of keep my eye out for them, but it's not like a formalized, here's an agenda for the meeting. And a lot of meetings are that way. And that kind of feels more transactional. I think people are just willing to, you know, spend a little bit of money to help folks like ourselves um, host these events, bring interesting people together. If people click, they make friends, they make, you know, certain uh, business connections, whatever it may be. Um, I think it's, I think it's just, it's, they like the community. Yeah. Makes sense. What is the most deviant thing somebody has done? Ooh. Um, in what, like in, within the community or. Well, so I remember um, to me, like one of the awesome parts of the pandemic that I kind of was the catalyst for me getting into being interested in biotech. Yeah. Um, where there were a group of people making their own vaccines at home. Yeah. Uh, this was before, like, Moderna and Pfizer, you know, released the vaccine data mm-hmm. and, like, the vaccines for public use. Um, yeah, there were just these people posting on forums, like, Radivac. They're just ordering peptides off the internet and mixing mm-hmm. them and then snorting them. Like, to me, that's a pretty deviant behavior, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is indeed very deviant. And so you're asking me what I think is the most deviant behavior? And maybe it, it isn't as extreme as just snorting random chemicals yeah, off yeah. the internet, but... Um, yeah, I'm curious, you know, how far that goes. Oh, well, I hope this is not like a let down answer. But for me, so like, I think one thing that I don't like about academia is that people feel like very private about what they're working on. Like if you ask mo- uh, most people, at least in my opinion, what they're working on, uh, who are working in academic space, they'll give you just like a piece of that puzzle. They'll try to keep things secret because the goal is always to publish, right? Keep everything secret. Everyone's trying to scoop you. But I just don't feel like science should work that way. Um, cause it's never like one project is like the end all be all. It's almost like I have a set of projects that will take me to one goal. And then a set of projects after I accomplish that one understanding finding, it takes me to, you know, a second goal that's part of like a larger couple of year plan of what I want to accomplish or create. And that's why I'm always kind of air on the side of being comfortable sharing what I'm working on. Cause if someone could do it better and faster than I can, that's great. They get me to then being able to start my next goal. Mm-hmm. And so I love the people that I meet in science that are really open with like what they're excited about to work on, what they're doing. And you'd be surprised that it's like so hard to find those people. So whenever I find those people, I feel like that's like very academic science deviant behavior of just being super open and just excited to share and kind of work together. Cause science is actually not that collaborative unless you're directly kind of formally collaborating with uh, researchers mm-hmm. on their projects. Yeah, that explains a lot, actually, about why there's certain people in academia I haven't gotten along with. <laughs> I think because I come from, you know, like a tech business background. And yeah. like in business, you're self-promoting all the time, yeah. right? It's just every time you meet somebody is yeah. an opportunity to like sell them on your thing, yeah. right? So that's so interesting that like people, there's a culture of like keeping it to yourself. Yeah, it's like they won't tell you the details. They are trying to sell you on like the, what they're working on is important, but they won't right. tell you why. And yeah. it's just like, what's the point? What are yeah. you doing? <laughs> There's a saying in startups, which is, um, don't worry about other people stealing your ideas. If it's good, you'll have to shove it down their throats. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's completely opposite of what happens inside. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs>
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's quite funny. And so how have you found the growth of the community? Like, and how have you struck the balance between, you know, your core group leading the charge versus encouraging regular members to participate more? Yeah. So I think that we've tried, we've wanted to really err on the side of caution of not growing too quickly because all of our growth so far has been completely organic. And we always encourage folks to bring anyone, you know, we're not select in terms of who joins the Slack. We won't kick people out unless, you know, an issue arises. But we always encourage folks to invite their friends, anyone who might be interested. And surprisingly, we've been able to maintain really high signal to noise. I think in terms of bringing on folks to the core team, all that we kind of ask is, you know, try to take charge on like at least one journal club, try to like put the slides together, reach out to the first author, try to invite them. We'll help facilitate a connection or um, try to reach out as well if they can't, if, if they don't get a response. And at the very least, we just want folks to start feeling comfortable leading like, you know, their own event or journal club session. And if that goes well and they're excited and they want to do more, then for us, that's like a green light to give them kind of a slice of the leadership. And I think a lot of folks prefer having a less committal relationship with DNA Deviants. They tune into some journal clubs, they post questions or interesting thoughts on the Slack. And that's completely fine. I think that already like contributes greatly to the community. And so, yeah, I think we've just been kind of erring on the side of let's not grow too big, too quickly. And that's really capitalized on, I think, a niche that we have in the space, which is doing journal clubs, doing journal clubs um, synchronously. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like an in real life podcast, although we do record um, for folks who can't make it. But I think I think there's benefit to not trying to really make it um, like a thing that we have to necessarily market as like a product. And it's just a fun hobby that we contribute to as often as like our schedule allows, which we hope to do is like one to two times a month the kind of the, the timing of the sessions. Yeah, it makes sense. And how do you find the conversation dynamic during a journal club? Has it been tricky in terms of like getting people to participate or maybe some people participate a little too much or like, yeah. how's that been? So we try to do an outline and have folks kind of take a few figures or discussion points that we naturally, like for example, if we're talking about um, like a screening paper and for going like background and how do you set up a screen, um, since that's what I do um, in my research, like that's something that, you know, naturally I should kind of take the lead on. And maybe if we have like a protein engineering component of the paper or like a design component to that, then, you know, Elijah or Paul with more on the ML protein engineering side should naturally kind of want to take leadership on that. And we've been kind of great on doing kind of that division pretty seamlessly. But I think one thing that we've struggled with and we're still trying to, um, find a better balance is I think our best conversations are the ones that we have as a smaller group before we go on like Twitch, um, just because we do kind of then ramp up the, let's have a more professional discussion or like we've already rehearsed this before. So one thing that we're trying is maybe we shouldn't have these like practice conversations before a journal club and we should just kind of have that organic conversation right then and there. Because sometimes like the best conversations we have are when we're like looking at the paper for the second time as a group and we're struggling through it together of like, oh my God, I don't understand like why they did this and this here. And then one of us will you know, say, oh, obviously it's this. And so it's a nice dynamic of someone teaching someone about something that they picked up on that others didn't. But then at the t- by the time we get to the journal club, it's like now we're all like pretty familiar with all the figures. Mm-hmm. So we lose a little bit of that serendipitous learning that I think is something we've tried to help folks in the community 
be a part of that process. I think that's one of the most challenging thing about reading papers in academia is that there's a word limit, there's a page limit, people try to condense everything, use complicated jargon and words. And so if we over rehearse some of that, then we're not kind of showing that part of the learning process of like, how do you even like go through a science paper? Mm -hmm. So that's something we're still kind of trying to strike a balance on. And I think Paul especially has been great at that because he doesn't come from, he comes more from like the um, the comp background and more of the machine learning background with applications to biology. But he always, that's why he always says, oh, I'm going to ask the, I'm going to be the layman person for this conversation, especially for doing like a more heavy bio paper. And he's been kind of really helping us um, distill topics into like very simple layman terms. Um, that's literally what he does when he reads the papers. Mm-hmm. So I think we could still get better um, at that kind of division and having more organic conversation. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that also helps you solve the problem of needing prerequisite knowledge yeah. uh, in order to tackle what are really highly advanced papers. Yeah. Right. It's like you can't really just come in with high school biology knowledge, or maybe you can. You know, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, that's how great your high school health Yeah, that's true. Was. Yeah, not great at all. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I mean, I, I do wonder because that's something I think is a challenge for people who are educators online, yeah. right? Is like, unlike a traditional academic context, like a classroom, you can't assume any background knowledge of your viewers. Yeah. I think this is temptation to kind of over-explain some beginner level things, which may... Uh, not appeal to someone who's just yeah. going to like skip that, right? But then if someone doesn't know that, then they're they're just not going to follow the conversation at all. So I wonder how you would solve the like prerequisite knowledge challenge. Yeah, I think with first in bio papers, especially, it's maybe like a easier thing to do, or at least like we think it's a little bit easier because sometimes you can just, if you're like, let's say you're talking about an interesting biological tool, you can sort of just explain like the very theoretical design of it from like first principles of like, okay, you have a cell just, treat it as like an entity. Let's say you want to get something into it to like make a change in the DNA. You need to deliver it with something. So, you know, a virus could be kind of like a vessel that takes something you want to put in into that cell. So like in some ways you can like talk in like very, I guess, like theoretical or sort of analogous terms that to someone who doesn't know anything about the subject, they could just like visualize literally like, you know, the virus being like a vessel or a ship taking it to something. But hearing that like kind of first principle explanation of like what's going on, like what's the problem, what do you have to do, what tools do you have at your disposal, it won't like distract too much from the conversation for someone who has that understanding, but at least it'll keep people on like a very easy like first page of how should they even orient themselves with the problem. Yeah. So it is a balance, though, because you can't cater to everyone. And so I'm sure we lose folks that are either too advanced for the conversation or are just way too intimidated by the topic, which is unfortunate. And we always get that question at the start of every drone club of what is the target audience or can I participate in this? And are we always there on the side of like, yes, of course. And if you have questions, you should ask them because they'll help us in real time kind of tailor the conversation. Because mm-hmm. we've had conversations where we prepped for a more in-depth, in-detail conversation. But then the questions we started receiving throughout the journal club were very evident that folks like just didn't have any background. And so if that's the majority of viewers at any given time, then that for us just meant, okay, like we need to we need to switch gears on this conversation because that's who's participating. And I think that's maybe the best way to do is just kind of, and, and the benefit to doing it um, synchronously is that you can kind of gauge from folks at what level they're, they're coming in at. Yeah, totally. I agree with that. And like having it a smaller group synchronously too. Yeah. It's like the one advantage that you can have in that format. Yeah. yeah. 
One thing that I've always been curious about and yeah. that I would love to get your take on is it seems to me that the main backlash against people who criticize longevity research yeah. is it feels to me that people have this anxiety against old people hanging on to power and not letting young people usurp them to take over the reins. That to I me see. that seems to me be the like critical criticism of longevity research. So if we make people live longer, how do we then also turn over power to younger generations? Well, I think like in general in every sector things shouldn't be like very definite in a sense that like indefinite where if someone has some position or some title, they shouldn't stay in that position forever. Like even in jobs, like this idea of just like always moving up a hierarchy, I don't really resonate with like that structure. Because a lot of it, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the times, like, people don't get promoted because they're better at what they do. It's just that they can play the game better than others. Mm -hmm. And the same thing is, like, with if someone's a ruler or really kind of monopolizing on a space. Similar things come about that way. It's just either they rose to that rank because of politics or they knew how to, like, you know, they were in the right place in the right time. So I think in general, like, society, I think, has to just adapt better ways of... Um, kind of filtering if someone's like the best person for that position. Maybe like then kind of communities where it is like more decentralized decision-making will come in really handy where it's not just like one person really having say of whether or not we should do one thing or another or keep one person in power or another. I don't, I don't think that by making folks not live as long will solve that problem. Because as you see, like there's plenty of young people that are also doing malicious things. Like there's plenty yeah. of bad actors, young and old. Um, there's plenty of good old actors. I, I think it's like a very um, too simple way of thinking like we just shouldn't extend lifespan because old people make bad decisions for the greater society. I think it's more more of a complex problem. Yeah, for sure. Just that. Yeah. Even if we have a perfect meritocracy, if you were to live longer, the older you live, the more skilled you, are, you will be, yeah. right? Just by virtue of having more time to build experience. Yeah. And so I think even in a perfect meritocracy, I think there might still be this bias towards people in the more powerful positions being older. Is that okay? Or is that like, is, is there a value to having younger people? I still don't. I still don't. Like, should we have affirmative action for younger people, essentially? Well, I think like, <laughs> I do think there's ageism on both ends. Yeah. Um, even like currently in the workplace. Right. And I think that... And to be clear, we're not in this ideal yeah, meritocratic yeah, yeah, world, yeah. right? Yeah, but yeah. I, I think, no, I agree. But I think that even if, but even now, if we look at folks who are older in a given job, would you say they're always better than the young people that come in? I wouldn't agree with that. Even if you think about um, your, you know, your own like day-to-day -day job, like have you encountered folks who are older and in every scenario, are they better employees than the younger folks? Yeah, like you said, right? It's like age is kind of not really relevant to like the person's skills and like, yeah. you know, are they good at the job? Yeah. I mean, I agree with that, right? Like there can be uh, people who are young, who are very talented or also not yeah. very talented, right? And vice versa for people who are elderly. Yeah. And, but I do think that by not having like a cutoff age of like where, or even like a cutoff career timeline, right? I think a lot of people choose jobs and choose paths because mm. they're safe and they have some, depends like what you prioritize, right? Like if you're like, I just want to make a lot of money. I want to retire by 40. I'm going to do this job I kind of hate, but it'll get me what I need by this timeline. Yeah. That decision might be very guided because you have this like fixed timeline in place of like when you want to retire, when you want to start a family, when you want to like 
have years of just like having a lot of money that you get to spend before you inevitably die. Like that's a lot. I think a lot of people go through like that kind of thinking um, puzzle or paradigm. And if that what weren't the case where you're not you're not like, oh, by age 80, I know I'm probably you know going to be done having like quality years of working or whatever it may be. You might be more um, more apt to taking on things that you actually care about or even just like not really having like even like money or like retirement like that almost falls out of the picture. Mm-hmm. So I think that would just kind of really reshift like what people end up doing with their lives. So it might kind of make, it's kind of even harder for me to model that problem. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point, right? Because if you can extend people's health span, it kind of uh, makes things that would otherwise be too risky, less risky. And I think we need more people to have that courage and take more risks instead of pursuing that safe path. So I agree it would at least increase variance in that direction, which overall I see as a good thing. Yeah. And also, you know, it's just good to have people live longer. I think that's should be clear to anyone who has any moral framework. Yeah, Yeah. health span and lifespan. Yeah, and I I was always been, the reason why I was kind of always just fascinated by aging and time was that my parents were on the older side when they had me. So I was always hyper aware of age. Mm -hmm. And I was was a young child when someone asked me if like my mom was my grandma. And then that realization made me Mm. think, wow, my mom does look older than other folks' moms by at least like, you know, 15 years. And that realization made me super fascinated by time and age. Yeah. How has your father's passing affected your work? So when I left undergrad, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. The work I was working on was not very biomedically relevant, but I was pre-med for some time of my undergrad. I shadowed physicians. I was like, you know, I don't know if this is for me. I get like too emotionally wrapped up in when I see, you know, very emotional events happen. I would consider myself too empathetic of a person. But after high school, my, my dad was already starting to feel quite ill but not to the extent that we knew that it was maybe at that point already cancer. Um, So he wasn't working at the time. And for me, when I finished undergrad and I started working um, on projects that were kind of more biomedically um, applicable, I realized that, you know, I wanted to do research. I wanted to work on things that could improve people's day-to-day lives. But when I saw my dad finally getting very ill and he was just like losing mental acuity and his cognition, that made me really fascinated by neuroscience. And so I was kind of floating around this idea of, okay, I would learn about memory and cognition and really try to figure out if, you know, what's so unique about humans as a species of all these kind of, you know, interesting capabilities that we had. And then that's kind of the statement I prepared for most of a majority of my graduate applications. And then right before I started like the interview process for grad school, uh, that's when my dad passed away. And another switch kind of flipped where I was like, okay, now when I go to grad school, I'm going to work on things and technologies that I, I, even though I'm more interested in basic biology, they're going to be things that I could see in the next few years becoming like really impactful uh, therapeutics or treatments or really kind of have a huge impact on the fields. I really enjoy working and my work and my hobbies are always like very closely blended just because uh, in a way I feel like I'm still able to not have all the sacrifices my, my dad had to go through in order to get me to the place that I am go sort of waste in vain. So in a way, I think it just like motivated me to stay more focused on like the overall yeah. goal. 
like galvanized you more towards what you're passionate about. Yeah, because yeah. I was always kind of just like thinking, okay, maybe I'm not good enough for this or maybe, um, you know, I should do something else. Like, do I really want to spend most of my time working? And he was someone who, when he wasn't sick, like worked, you know, all the time. And so I think for me, like just seeing him in like that state and how much he had to like give up um, for me just made me think, okay, yeah. whatever I want to do in life, whatever I want to accomplish, I totally can. Maybe we only have one life, who knows? But uh, at least I know that I have this one life right now. So I'm going to make uh, the most of it. And yeah. for me, like that goal is to improve as many, extend, improve as many lives as possible. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. How often do you reflect on your own lifespan? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting because I don't feel myself getting older okay. because each year I feel better. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> it's interesting because I, when I was really young, I didn't really like exercising. Like it's not that I didn't like it, just not something, like, it wasn't the best swimmer. I wasn't the best whatever each sport. I was just like, okay, this is fine. Like. I'm in shape enough, but now it's just like for fun, like working out or running, I enjoy it. Um, so I don't know, like, I think I'm somewhat conscious of just, you know, fasting sometimes eating somewhat healthy. Uh, mm -hmm. so no, I think I'm, I think I'm pretty conscious of like my day-to-day -day habits. And I feel like you have to be, if you're in the longevity aging your space, it's kind of like when you see, I don't know, I think everyone who's just like really obsessed with their profession, they mm -hmm. uh, kind of let that go into their daily. Don't habits. trust a skinny chef, I think is the yeah, problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, have they tried their food? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. No, so you sure. must know all the secrets to anti-aging then. No, no, definitely not. But I'm, I'm definitely, so I'm currently interested in cold tolerance. That's okay. kind of the niche of the aging relevant space yeah. that I'm going into. But no, I mean, I think... The thing that's most frustrating, I think, about the aging longevity research space is that now there is a lot of noise. I mean, I'm really happy that there's, you know, more funding, more resources coming to the space, and it's really trying to, like, carve out its own niche. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, whenever that happens in any field, you're going to have, like, too many people who are over-enthusiastic coming in and maybe being a little shoddy on the science and um you know that's a huge that's a huge detriment to i guess like the great or folks who are trying to come into the space because it will turn a lot of people away mm -hmm. and also makes it really harder to figure out what's legitimate or not yeah interesting we so on the previous episode of this podcast i interviewed neville madura uh mm -hmm. he wants to die at 85 he's actually he knows the exact date he's like oh i'm wow. gonna jump into a volcano It'll inconvenience as few people as possible. It'll be a clean way to go. Why Why is that? I'm um, curious. Yeah, I mean, he's like, well, I got a limited time. May as well, uh, you know, make it concrete. And so <laughs> helps me focus. So it's kind, but of, see, kind of interesting. See, uh, he, he says there's a limited time. Yeah. And is that because of just like current data that's available? Like, I mean, probably. I, but what I, if what if you ask him again at like I don't know how old he is now, but if you ask him at like maybe age sixty five, yeah. You know, how do you feel right now? Yeah, yeah. We talked about this in the last episode, but he um, bumped it up to eighty five. It was previously eighty. Oh wow! Yeah. See, see, so, yeah. so, <laughs> <as we laughs> already, yeah, yeah, yeah. As we keep, <laughs> make, keep making progress uh -huh. on. Uh, Aging therapeutics. So, it's going to keep going up. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Maybe in a few years, it'll be like at 125. Achieve like escape velocity. Yeah. Yeah. It advances faster than you can change the number. Yeah. That's funny. You should yeah. keep track each time you ask. Yeah. Like, keep a little graph saying yeah. how it's going up and then compare it with like uh -huh. success of aging companies, maybe on the market, just to see like what's causing that increase. Yeah. Interesting. That's funny. How long would you like to live? Oh, that's a tough question. Do you know the saying of like, I plan to live forever? <laughs> I mean, I don't plan, maybe, I don't know. I don't think forever is the right... Um, forever is a very long time. It is a very long time. Yeah. <laughs> 
But I, I don't like to kind of think of like a date. I think that, you know, there's, I mean, could die tomorrow, right? From yeah. like a freak accident. Hopefully my goal is that it will be from an accident or it will be from something that I otherwise couldn't have prevented or have foreseen. Mm-hmm. That's, I guess, my hope that um, it won't be due to some unnecessary suffering. Yeah. I think that's probably the the worst way to go. Yeah. Or I just, I hope that I can maintain like mental acuity until my last day or last second. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Yeah. I remember on YouTube, there's a video called uh, Time Lapse Until the End of Time or something like that. <laughs> And it's like 20 minutes long. And then like by minute one, it's like the sun has exploded. All life is dead. And it's like, well, there's still like 19 minutes left in this video. (laughs) And it just goes on. And the the time like increases exponentially as the video goes. So there's just like trillions (laughs) upon trillions of years of just like floating through space. So it's kind of funny. Amazing. Yeah. Would you sign up for cryonics? I think the cryonics field is kind of, uh, I, my research, I think, is like kind of part of that field a little bit, or at yeah. least I consider it part of it. My goal is to, sounds like very futuristic, but it would be really cool if we could hibernate humans. Oh, yeah. Um, so put them in like a Very helpful for practical applications. Could, well, yeah. I mean, sending people to space or right. just like if, you know, you're, um, we don't know how to cure whatever disease you have. If we could put you in like a low metabolic state, like a stasis state, mm-hmm. it could potentially buy more time if um, that process itself didn't accelerate aging as well. Is this what you meant by cold exposure? Yeah, in a way, like I think we harness, you know, interesting properties of the cold. I mean, medical hypothermia already exists. So if someone has like a heart attack and they can't like bring them back, some doctors will induce folks into a um, hypothermia-like state and then rewarm them after some time period. Mm. And unfortunately, we don't really know exactly um, both like the best ways to like that technology is just mm-hmm. not very well does, does that worked work out. Does that exist right now? So it does exist. People do it, but like oh. the success rate is like very, very low. It's like almost seems like it's almost like random chance of whether it works for folks or I not. See. Um, there's not that much literature that I found on like the exact like success rate, but it seems to, you know, work for in the cases that it does. So really kind of just like learning about that a bit more um, and kind of figuring out like, you know, the basic biology of, you know, what happens in a cold will potentially improve that work. But I'm to your answer, yes, I would sign up for something like Alcor. Just because why not? You know, at that point, like, you know, they don't preserve you until you're legally pronounced dead. So then they start reviving you once the doctor will like legally mm-hmm. um, pronounce you dead, which I didn't know exactly like that procedure until I spoke to someone in Europe who runs a, a similar a similar institute um, at Future Forum, this like thing I went to in SF yeah. a few weeks ago. So why not? Like, you know, it's like there's at that point, if you're dead, why not maybe whatever point zero 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 whatever percent that is chance of someday being revived, uh, I would take it. <laughs> yeah, awesome. At that point. But yeah, this is like very much like a fringe science area still, I feel like to many. Yeah. Well, it depends on what circles you run in. I guess if yeah, you talk exactly. to the San Francisco crowd. Yeah, in San yeah. Francisco, it's like if you ask someone, would you sign up? They're like, oh, yeah, it's a casual question. Yeah. Like, do you want coffee? <laughs> and then you ask one in Boston, yeah. they're just like, you are insane. Like, who are you? <laughs> Yeah. And I've only operated on the East Coast, in the East Coast crowd. So um, I would yeah. consider myself then like the more insane person with <laughs> yeah. people in my circle. It seems like there's some practical issues too, right? It, like if you, let's say if you sign up with your spouse, but then you come to your untimely end before your spouse does. Yeah. It's like, well, then do they remarry? Like, because 
technically you're not dead yet, right? So like, <laughs> I, I don't know. It feels like there's some like unsolved social oh, contracts. Some, yeah, you some clauses. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. Maybe if you both sign up. Well, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's hard to say. I would, I'd probably on the side of just yeah. like giving my blessing. Pretty awkward to wake up on the other end. And have like, fun yeah. then. <laughs> and then maybe one day we'll see each other again. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, Oh, one thing I was going to say that what got me really interested in, in, in the cold is when my dad was going through like palliative care at that point, like, you know, we knew that he was probably going to die with either be like a month or at most a year. And he was really self-conscious about losing his hair. And so I was looking at like, you know, different ways that maybe we can um, prevent that from happening. And there's these companies that produce cold caps, which are literally mm. just like helmets that will keep you really cold when you're getting like chemotherapy treatment and you think you have to wear them for like a longer duration, but he didn't do the exact like regimen we were supposed to, but like remarkably people don't lose their hair if they mm. like wear these cold caps. So it's like basically preventing like the something with the hair follicles from um, uh, your hair falling out. And it's such a simple technology, right? It's just literally keeping that part of your body Ice cold. Packs, yeah. yeah. And it prevents like you losing from your hair. So that kind of got me just really interested because I think that, I mean, making good therapeutics is really difficult. And I, I found that um, in general, just like looking towards really remarkable things that naturally happen in the world and trying to sort of hijack, you know, those, those things. Um, scientists have been really successful at that, of just like looking what happens naturally in nature and then trying to mimic that versus like really doing a lot of like, de novo engineering mm. so that for me just was like a no-brainer of like yeah i should definitely work on this and maybe like memory and cognition will be like something i tackle in uh, my later years if i plan to live forever there'll yeah. be time for cognition nice. <laughs> so i consider myself a fake neuroscientist right now just because i'm not like directly I'll, I'll come back to neuroscience within my phd but i'm not directly um doing a lot of neuro right now but i think the most interesting questions are actually like memory and cognition and that's what got me really interested it's just if there's something i could accomplish like in the nearer term i think this these projects right now um in the cold biology space are just a little bit um more readily achievable on a given timeline makes sense yeah our memories are who we are in his memory encoded a cell level, like there's like convincing yeah. experiments that show, yes, I mean, even with like reprogramming, like if you, depending on like what the original cell was that you're reprogramming, like there's memory, like epigenetic memory tied to that cell's like former identity. So mm -hmm. it's just pretty fascinating. But yeah, biology is just, it's so cool. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. What is your vision for DNA deviance? Yeah, that's a great question. Where do you want to take the community? So I think, I think we definitely want to focus on really distilling and bringing great science and scientists together. And um, I like a separate program that I ran through DNA Deviance last year was a mentor mentee match program where I matched a hundred mentees who wanted to apply PhD programs or just had questions about, you know, how they could become a quote unquote scientist with a hundred PhD students across the U S and UK. Mm. Then we host like mock interview sessions for those who like ended up getting interviews to grad school. So it was very much like academia focused last year. And we're trying to, I'm trying to expand from that this year. So mentorship is definitely like one big part of it. Cause sometimes I never kind of shied away from doing cold emails to folks. It's something that like, I don't know, think if you grew up in like a first gen immigrant household, no one's going to send a warm intro for you. Mm -hmm. It's, just kind of like I found people on the internet and I was like, oh, I'll reach out to this like director of X and who knows, they might reply. And sometimes they did. But for other folks, like I understand that like, could be very intimidating to do this. So 
trying to like, you know, foster warm intros from folks of, you know, different people there excited to meet in whatever company or space that I might um, be connected with. Like that for me, it's just like very selfishly heartwarming and I enjoy it. Um, and so kind of bringing more mentorship into, into the community in a structured, but also like very casual way. And yeah, really just making sure that we're providing as best quality journal clubs um, as we can. And um, we've also identified folks in our community who want to be kind of more core leaders in different areas of the world. So UK and San Francisco. So we're hoping to kind of really help those chapters expand a bit in this coming year and also help them get like a little bit of funding for their events just so we don't we kind of expand um from boston because i think that's one thing that's holding us back is that the people outside of boston can only really participate in in real life events if they happen to be in boston most of the community is here but actually we i think it was like a crazy we have like 16 time zones in dna deviants like the slack it was some like crazy statistic that I think it was like uh, Will who recently joined the core team. He's a PhD student at MIT as well. He was like made, made that comment on the last core team meeting we had, and I was like, "That's insane. That's that's crazy. I didn't even realize there were that many time zones in the world." But yeah. um, so I think that really just focusing on journal clubs, expanding the chapters, just so um, we can kind of foster similar community in person in different parts of the world as well to be more inclusive, and really focusing on mentorship and having folks um, have better access to um, people within, outside of academia, alternative career paths if one or the other doesn't work out or it's not the best fit. But if you have any suggestions, we're always open to hear. I really like the mentorship is creating this avenue for people to kind of help their peers too, Mm -hmm. right? Because to me, I think that's like really important for a community to have cohesion. It's not just you know, when you lead a journal club, it's kind of top down, right? It's like yeah. there's somebody leading and everyone else is just kind of following or tuning in. Yeah. And like, you can ask questions, right? But like, but really the magic is when you can help your peers, right? And then it's no, no longer just this top down yeah. vehicle for helping people, but like people helping each other in this like vibrant, interconnected network of support. That's, I think, what creates a great community. So I yeah, think the no. mentorship model moves in that direction. Yeah, no, exactly. Like, I, I think, you know, there's benefit to having, like, some leadership, which, like, that's the one thing that oh, of I, course. Think, yeah. I think, like, DAOs will struggle with is, like, yeah. if you become too decentralized, like, someone has to make a decision at some point. Right. Like, there has to be a little, like, an inch of hierarchy, which DAOs have to, like, even Vida, like, there's a core team, right? Mm-hmm. But similarly, like, I think exactly what you said. We don't want to be, like, the ones holding power. We don't want to be, like, gatekeeping any resources. Yeah. We're not shipping any product to folks in the group. So we, we definitely want people to find like their their right folks that really they can um, nicely vibe with. That's something I think on deck try to do very well is um, create like mini groups within like the larger organization, shuffle the groups around so you get to like meet more people. Um, and we haven't been doing like those curations um, as much. So I think that's definitely something um, on the horizon to um, strive towards. Awesome. Uh, how can our listeners get more involved or learn more? I think joining the Slack, asking questions, if there's a topic that, you know, sounds intimidating, but you think is really cool or just a topic you're really excited about, we can find the paper. We can do find a review. We don't even have to do a paper if that it, if there isn't like a great one that fits. Or you can just even do like a whiteboard chalk style session, which um, we've also done at previous journal clubs. Um, we so were like, again, whiteboard. Oh, so this is something, uh, okay. ch- chalk style session is something we say in academia all the time. Wait, hold on. Shock sale? Chalk, chalk style. Chalk style. Like a chalk style discussion. So it's like someone goes up to a chalkboard and oh, draws okay. out what they're talking about. Yeah. 
So like, for example, if you're trying to explain to someone like, what is, you know, genetic engineering, they can go up to a chalkboard and like draw it out, like with chalk and oh, like cool. show you, you know, what's going on, walk you through an example as if you were like, you know, one-to-one, like small lecture. Yeah. Um, so we've done that with um, a few uh, like topics that we did that weren't necessarily a journal club with a given paper. So if there is a topic, for example, that is like really exciting to you or even sounds exciting and you want us to either do a paper, talk through the topic or do this like chalkboard style session, we're always looking for um, awesome feedback and folks to co-lead discussions with us. So everything is like kind of on the table. Yeah, it's awesome. Staying curious. Yeah, stay curious. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for chatting, Kat. Oh yeah, thank you. All right, friends, stay curious. Join the DNA Deviants Slack group and follow Kat on Twitter at twitter.com slash DNA Deviants. Links are in the show notes. Special shout out to Maxi Freeney for editing this show. Thank you for all of your hard work. I really love getting feedback from you. Tell me about what you enjoyed, any constructive comments you might have. Go to billmay.net, that's B-I-L-L-M-E-I.net, and send me an email. I read every email. According to my stats, only 1% of listeners have left a review. So if you are part of the 99% that has not yet left a review, you can open up iTunes and submit one. And I will do a special shout out to you in the next episode. This is also super important to help other people find the show. Subscribe to the show at friendshipfuturism.com to subscribe to the email list and get access to events, curated writing, and to join the community. All right, looking forward to your reviews and comments. See you next time. 